0: really kind of fascinating i when i was doing the sermon preparation this week i started thinking about this person and so i started you know googling and seeing what's up and i wanted to get more information on it and it was the 40th anniversary of this event with this person this past tuesday isn't that crazy how that happens you know the providence of god and sermon preparation i kind of rely on that um 40 years ago this past tuesday the then 19 year old patty hurst remember her Yes? No? Older folks, remember Patty Hearst? In in 19 years ago, or 40 years ago, she was 19. She was American. She is an American newspaper heiress, socialite, and actress. She was kidnapped. This past Tuesday was the 40-year anniversary of her kidnapping. She was abducted from her San Francisco apartment building, uh, and it set off this media feeding frenzy about, you know, this heiress, right? Kidnapped, and then two months later, Uh, she was photographed brandishing a rifle and participating in the robbery of a bank with the people that just kidnapped her, which were the Symbionese Liberation Army. I'm sure you know about them because I think there's maybe five of them, Uh, and they're no longer around. Uh, But she joined her kidnappers. It's a radical left-wing group. I don't know exactly what they're about, but it's something to do with symbiosis. I have no idea. I can't go any further. <laughs> Sorry. Um, in 1976, she was captured and she was convicted of bank robbery. Not wild. She's now become like the poster child of a syndrome, uh, the perfect illustration of what's called the Stockholm syndrome. Have you heard of that? Okay, that is also called capture bonding. It's a psychological phenomenon when the victim uh, connects emotionally with her captors in a positive way. She sympathizes with them. She empathizes with them so much that she actually now starts to protect them and then eventually (laughs) joins them. Isn't that crazy? Um, Mental health experts call it traumatic bonding, quote, a strong emotional ties that develop between two persons where one person intermittently harasses, beats, threatens, abuses, or intimidates the other, but a bond is formed. In other words, Stockholm syndrome is a severe psychological defense mechanism. It's a severe way that we try to protect ourselves in a very, very abusive situation. Patty Hearst, you know, how she says it in her own words. She describes it this way. Well, somewhere around here. Here it is. She says, uh, Stockholm syndrome is what it's called when you begin to identify with your captors. I mean, once they don't kill you, they start looking nice to you. And she says, They get nicer every day that they don't kill you, end quote. I think a lot of us suffer from a kind of spiritual Stockholm syndrome where we have this spiritual, our spiritual captors become good guys to us. We actually start identifying with them and their abuse and the breakdown that comes from them to our lives, we start emotionally connecting to because at least we say to ourselves, well, at least it's not emotional emptiness. At least I've got something, right? And all of a sudden, living a self-protective life becomes normal. <laughs> living like a, like a slave day in and day out becomes normal to us. Now, all of you are wondering, well, you know, what's that spiritual captor? What are you talking about? Who captures us? What is that? Satan? Um, Note the Bible says the law. That the law is a spiritual captor that we have this Stockholm Syndrome like relationship with. Here's what we're going to do. Today we're going to uh, live real. We're going to live real by learning to live like a son and a daughter and not a slave please stand for the hearing of God's word now there is a, I need to make a correction it's my fault completely in your bulletin we're going to read Matthew 5:17 through 20 so scratch out that other stuff that looks like it has nothing to do with the sermon because it does have nothing to do with the sermon that was my fault
1: A reading from Matthew five seventeen twenty, 20, Galatians 5, 14, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31, Romans 6, 1 through 4, and 8, uh, 15, Galatians 1, verse 5, excuse me, Galatians 5, verse 1, and verse 6, uh, Galatians 6, verse 7 through 8, and Colossians 3, 1 through 5. And I'll read first, 5:17 um, through 20, which is in your uh, Bible, pew Bibles at page 810. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So going back to our bulletin, uh, starting with Galatians 5:14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. What shall we say then? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.
0: Thanks, Thanks, Steve. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that by the power of your Spirit you would shine on the page in such a way that our eyes are open, that we behold the wonders of it. We behold Him uh, who is our life. That you would set our hearts and minds on things above, which means uh, on the person and work of Jesus. What's what's been accomplished, His performance, and how that's the power of God for our salvation. Uh, Even our growth as Christians, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is our last stop in our brief series on the law. Last one. And then we're marching back with the Israelites as they trudge on through the rest of the story in Exodus. We'll be back in the story of Exodus. And when we get there, I guess we're going to focus on another non-controversial topic, worship. So no big deal. We focused on the law controversially. (laughs) Now we're going to be tackling worship for about five or six sermons, and then who knows what we'll do should be fun. All right, we're doing a big idea treatment of the law, right? It's called a theological treatment. We're not doing uh, burrowing in into each and every commandment. If that's something that you're interested in, something that you must have or you cannot be a complete person, go to the website and you will find uh, a series on the Ten Commandments where that was done about three years ago. Uh, and you can get whatever commandment you want to look at and whatever your interests are in there. Possibly it's examined and explored and and taught uh, in a way that you find uh, beneficial and helpful. All right, so far in this theological treatment, what have we looked at? We've looked at the chaos and the confusion of the law. We've looked at the struggle for righteousness. And we've looked at uh, the fatal attraction of the law that we all have. Well, today, we're going to look at living real. We're going to look at living like a son or a daughter, not like a slave. Not like Patty Hearst, Okay. And some of you are thinking, but what's the difference, Jeff? My family experience is a son or a daughter is a slave. Um, And I want to say at the beginning, I'm sorry that's the case. And I wish it wasn't for you. Uh, And it might be difficult for you to engage the image of a father and a son and a father and a daughter that is a, a, a biblical image. But what I want to say to you, too, is I, I don't want you to erase that image just because it's defaced. I want you to redeem it. And I want you to let the Lord renew that image in truth. And the reason why is this. I mean, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't for the fact that it's just a, you know, if it was just a nice image and a nice picture, well, we can get away with that and find another image and find another picture. I mean, if that one bothers you and that one has traumatic trauma to your life, Uh, then yeah, let's get rid of it. But here's the point. The reason why it's so painful to you and the reason why it's such a tough thing for you and me is because the father-son, father-daughter relationship is engraved and etched into the very fabric of human relationships. You can't get rid of it. Uh, It's God-designed. So as painful as it is, it's painful because of that fact. So we can't erase it even though it's defaced, we need to redeem it. We need to restore it, okay? So hopefully some restoration will come to you. I'm not saying it's going to be fully. It could be just the beginning, but let's, let's take some steps, okay? All right, um, here's the plan. We're going to finalize the primary role of the law in life. Aren't you glad? I mean, let's finally put this thing to rest. What's the purpose of the law primarily in life? I mean, let's do it. Let's say, here's its purpose. Let's know what its purpose is, because if you do know what its purpose is, you're on your way to not being a Stockholm Syndrome person. But if you don't know its purpose, if you don't know its role in your life, I guarantee you, with the authority of the scriptures, you will live like a slave. It's just what happens with the human condition. So that's what we're going to do. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to answer, we're going to ask first, and then we're going to answer a very controversial question. And you're going to know, you're going to see it, you're going to feel it. You're actually going to ask it yourself as we go on in a sermon. I'm going to anticipate you, okay? And the reason why we're going to do that is if we have any chance of experiencing life as a son and life as a daughter the way it's meant to be, we've got to ask that question. And we've got to answer it according to the Bible. If we don't answer it rightly, we're back to being a slave, Okay? So nothing's really at stake in the sermon at all. So just relax, sit back. Here we go. You ready? What's the primary role of the law in life? What is it? What is it? Well, the great apostle Paul tells his pastoral protege, Timothy, he says this, look, Timothy, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. The law is good if it's used properly. The law is not good if it's not used properly. You catch that? Paul is saying, if we use the law improperly, you will become, I will become a slave. We become Patty Hearst. My captors love me. My captors are the good guys. My captors are out for me. Oh, all that, uh, that abuse and that breakdown that they bring to my life, it's emotional connection. It's life. It's not emotional emptiness. Uh, my captors, uh, I have a bond with them, and they have a bond with me. I actually sympathize with them. I want to join their team. Um, we've gone through 20 chapters so far with the Israelites in Exodus. I don't know about you, but I've kind of grown fond of these folks. <laughs> I like Moses. Moses. I like Aaron now, I won't like him in a couple chapters, but at least I like him now, right? And we've watched these guys go through hair-raising terrors, creepy terrors for 20 chapters. And we've seen and had with them, we saw our adrenaline start pumping and rushing as we, and our fists up in the air as we saw incredible triumphs them go through, right? We've grown fond of them. In Exodus 20, they're given the law, they're given the Ten Commandments. It's a high watermark for them. And in chapters 21, 22, and 23, we're not going to go talk about those. But 21, 22, and 23 are what are called case laws. They're applications of the Ten Commandments to their time period, their context, their chapter in redemptive history. So please do not, do not read 21, 22, and 23. Take the application of the Ten Commandments for them and say, this is what it is for us. Now, do not boil goats in oil. Please don't do that. I don't know, maybe there's some wisdom there that you can keep, but I, I don't see it. My point is this, a lot of our problems, and this is, a, this is a commercial, part, a lot of our problems in handling like what to do with life is confusing doctrine in Scripture with applications in Scripture. Doctrine are things like the Ten Commandments. Don't have an idol. Don't have another God before me. Honor your mom and your dad. Applications could be like, you know, Uh, write an honorable letter to your parents. But writing an honorable letter to your parents is not doctrine that everyone has to write an honorable letter to their parents to honor and obey their parents. Do you see the difference? And that happens over and over again in the church. We take applications of doctrines and now all of a sudden they become doctrines and everyone has to do them. Like they're laws and they're not. So don't do 21, 22, and 23. That's my sermon on those chapters. Don't use those, please. Don't do it. All right, now, what's my point? All this to say is that Israelites are given the finest law system in the world. They are given the the highest code of ethics and morality the world has ever seen. They are given 10 commandments that etch the very fabric of humanity and show you what it looks like to be a human being. What's an image bearer look like? What does it look like to be alive? What it looks like to be a human being? There it is. And yet, these Israelites that we have grown very fond of, every single one of them die in the desert, never getting to the promised land. Why? Because they broke the law continually that we get in chapter 20. So here's the question, and it's a very important question. What does that tell us about the power of the law? What does it tell us about the capability of the law? What does it tell us about the intent of the law and the primary purpose of the law if no one can keep it? The primary role of the law in life is not to fix your life. It's not to change your life. It's not to improve your life. It's not to make you and me a better person. It's not to generate a connection with God so that you can connect with him and connect to his love. The primary purpose of the law is not to establish a a sense of worth and value and an identity for you and be a basis for your relationship with other people. It's not, uh, it's not, having the purpose to empower you for holiness and obedience and spiritual maturity. The primary role of the law in our life is to bring you and me to our knees. Continually. Over and over again. To where we say things like, oh God, ah, I can't do that. I don't do that. I did do that. And I am like that. I am weak. I am lost. And I am sinfully messed up. I can't even try to save myself. There's no way I can be my own Lord. I can't control my life. There's no way I can be my own Savior. I can't make things right. With you, with me, with others, with the world, I can't. Oh, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's the purpose of the law. That's the primary function of the law. And if you get that, you handle it properly. It's useful to you. If you don't get that, and I don't get that, welcome, Patty Hearst. And so the law leads us to the end of ourselves so it can lead us to another. I read this in Mere Christianity. Well, actually, I read it in a book that was quoting Mere Christianity. I don't want to obey one, disobey one of the commandments. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, Out of ourselves into Christ we all must go. You see that? Out of ourselves Into Christ we must go. That's the primary purpose of the law, right there. It is to take us and show us that we are in slavery. It's to take us and show us that we can't do it. It's to take us and show us that we are lawbreakers. We can't keep it internally. Maybe we can manage it externally. I mean, you can manage not murdering. You can manage not committing adultery. You can manage maybe not lying. But internally, internally you can't. And what the law does is it actually leads you to say, I can't do it. I've got to get outside of my own righteousness. I've got to get outside of my own confidence. I've got to get outside of my own ability. I can't rely on myself. I can't be my own Savior and Lord to the one who is. In other words, the law leads us eventually to sonship. It leads us to the one who on behalf of his brothers and sisters kept the law perfectly For his brothers and sisters, so they can be brothers and sisters of him, and they can be sons and daughters of God, all because of his righteousness, his obedience, his performance, his work. So the law is a great gift, and it is very, very useful when it's used properly. I don't want you to miss what Jesus is saying about the law in Matthew 5. You've got to get your Bibles because it's not in your bulletin. But listen to what Jesus says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And that's the point. Jesus is the only human being in all of human history that does it. Now, remember, there's a a contrast over and over again. It starts with Adam. If Adam was almost like a savior figure, because Paul brings him out in Romans 5, and he says, listen, if Adam would have obeyed, he would have taken creation on his shoulders, you and me, and taken us before God, and glorification would have happened. Justification for the whole world, the new heavens and the new earth would have happened, but he didn't. That's why the Bible goes over and over again that Jesus is the better Adam, and then you're wondering, okay, great. Now, what about Israel? Where Israel's is interesting, Israel becomes a people through the waters. It's like the Spirit hovers over the waters, and they are defined and redeemed and created as a people through the waters of the Red Sea, and then they're brought to a mountain, almost like in Eden, another mountain, who knows what it is. And then God calls them his people, names them his people, and he says, if you, if you obey me, you'll stay in the land. And none of them makes it to the land. And the Bible comes in and says, "Jesus is the true Israel. He's the only human being who fulfilled the law. I did not come to abolish it; I came to fulfill it." And then verse nineteen and eighteen is eighteen and nineteen. That's dyslexia uh, is key. For truly, I say to you, until the heavens and earth pass away, when do the heavens and earth pass away? The end of all things, and the beginning of all things, the new world right? The new heavens and the new earth. He says, truly I say to you, until that happens, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Not one sheer, perfect demand of the law will pass away until that day. Not one um, perfect obligation to keep the law internally and obey it perfectly externally will ever go away till that day. Why? He answers it. Until all is accomplished. What's all that is accomplished? So that he can save his brothers and sisters. So that he can save them by the righteousness of another. And then, just in case we miss it, the next verse makes it real clear. It's the conclusion, it's the point. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, you know what that means? If you make a commandment doable, if you relax it, if you try to lessen the demand for absolute perfection in thought, emotion, desire, communication, and deed, if you relax one and make it less demanding and say, look, it's doable, I'll just give you a biblical principle on how to fix your life. Apply these principles and you'll be okay if you relax it. And you become a teacher of others that do the same. This gives me the, this makes me shake a little bit. You will be least in the kingdom of heaven. So, according to Jesus, relaxing the law, making it keepable, making it doable is shameful. In other words, there's a lot of discussion about. Are you a legalist, a moralist? Are you one of the younger brothers, the older brothers, right? We talk about that very fluently here. Please hear me. If we are law followers, if we're list makers, if we're moralists and legalists, according to Jesus, we're not legalistic enough. We don't have too much law. We have too little law. We relaxed it. Because somehow we think we can keep it. And somehow we think our children can keep it. And somehow we think people we teach in fixing their marriages can keep it. And Jesus says, shameful. Because the primary purpose of the law is to drive you out of yourself to me. Love the law? You bet love the law. (laughs) Love the law. Love that it... It is a tremendous tool in God's hands to bring us to our knees. Love it. Love that it will tell you the truth always. It will not be the flatterer. It will say to you, you are lost. You are messed up. You can't save yourself. You need a savior. All right. Something a little lighter. What's the controversial question that we've got to answer correctly here in this passage? All these passages, this topic, to live like sons and daughters of God. Here it is. You read, you've, been, you've been thinking it. You might have anticipated it. Is there such a thing as too much grace? Can't too much of a good thing be a bad thing? Won't too much grace produce sons of anarchy? I mean, won't too much grace, If Jeff, if all you do is grace, 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 grace will not, will not not just produce sin gone wild. I mean, where's the restraint? Where's the responsibility? How are you going to rein people in? How are you going to make them change their lives? How are you going to have some, inject some manners into kids and put some, I don't know, you know, whatever you do, right? How are you going to do that? Now, I want to try to be fair. I'm not trying to be snarky, although I am a snarky a little bit. Um, There seems to be this thought that we need to have a balance between the law and the gospel in order for someone to pursue holiness and change a life kind of like you take this pot of stew, you throw a little law in, throw a little gospel in, mix it all about, and poof, you've got an ingredient that helps you. You don't want too much grace. You got too much grace. You don't have enough restraint. You got anarchy. You don't want too much law because nobody wants to be called a moralist or a legalist. Yikes. So you just have a little mixture. You put a little concoction together and everybody feels good. What's trying to be, I'm trying to be fair, what's trying to be achieved in in that view, the view that says there's too much, too much grace is a bad thing, what's trying to be achieved is the avoidance of a, a heresy called antinomianism. Antinomism. And that means anti law. All right. So the folks that say too much grace is a bad thing, they're trying to avoid being anti law. I applaud them for that. Great. Fantastic. Now, what's happening is they're just not trying hard enough. It's, it's not about having. Too much grace. Too much grace is actually pro-law, not anti-law, because it's only the grace of God that can fulfill the law. Only the grace of God doesn't relax the law because it took Jesus to complete it. Only the grace of God says, you need something more than yourself. You can't do it. Don't trust me, trust the Apostle Paul. He answers this one in Romans 6 in your bulletin. What shall we say then? What, what, what is he saying? Well, what shall we say to everything I just said in chapter 5, Paul is saying, where I just talked about the first Adam and the second Adam, where I just talked about the righteousness and the obedience of the true Adam, the true Savior. And by his obedience and his righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. Justification happens for those who are ungodly and unrighteous. You can be accepted and welcomed and taken in and completely have worth and value and be approved and validated because of the acceptability of another. Not your own acceptance, but the acceptability of another. Not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of another. another. What shall we say then to all that stuff? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? See how he's being accused of having too much grace. Now that's very, very important. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably the greatest preacher who's considered of the last of the Puritan preachers died in like 1981. He was in London. And he said, if you are not accused of being antinomian in your ministry, you're not preaching the gospel. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Won't too much grace produce sons of anarchy? Sin gone wild. Here's Paul's answer. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Then he goes on and talks about being baptized with Christ into his death, being buried, therefore, with him into his death, and order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. Paul's answer to sin, Paul's answer to you and me in struggling with sin, Paul's answer in your pursuit of spiritual maturity, Paul's answer in you trying to change and you trying to be holy is not giving you the law. It's more grace. His answer is he gives you the gospel. Jesus' death for you. He did not give you a promise to keep. He didn't give you a list to follow. He says, you need to hear the gospel, what Jesus has done for you. How can you live in sin? when you've died to it. In other words, in the Bible's world, too much grace isn't anti-law. Too much grace is pro-law. Jesus fulfills the law. He keeps it perfectly for those who don't. He dies the death debt for those that fail it and break it. And then here's the point. His grace delivers you from the kingdom of sin and its tyrannical control, and its dominion of universal darkness, his death kills that for you. You die to this kingdom, and you come alive to another kingdom. Objectively and experientially, cosmically, it's done. You have now transferred from one kingdom to the next kingdom. In other words, sin, he's saying, is like Pharaoh, and Jesus' death on the cross leads you out of Egypt. Egypt. You're out of Egypt if you're a Christian. You can't go back. It's hard. You, you can try to take a sin and try to live in it as much as you can, but you can never go back to Egypt because you've been taken out of Egypt and you're out of that land for good definitively because it's not you that puts you in and it's not you that takes you out. His death took you out. His death was so powerful. It broke the bondage and the reign and the rule and the dominion of sin in your life. So now you say, I'm dead to sin and sin is dead to me. So it is absolutely impossible for someone who is now in this kingdom to go back and say, I want to be in this kingdom and live in this. You can't. You died to it and you rose to that one because you died with Jesus and you rose with him, and that's gospel truth. Living in Egypt is now an impossibility. And it's an impossibility we need to recognize, not an impossibility we have to obtain. Do you see the difference? Romans 6 is going to tell you over and over again, will you please recognize this? He's saying, listen, this is true. Be who you are. Be who you are. Not do this, 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 and this, and then you'll get yourself out of it. The exhortation is, you are out be it. You are a son. You are a daughter. Be a son. Be a daughter. Okay. Now, I know there's issues of, well, what about the sin that I wrestle with? And it feels like it has dominion over me. It feels like it's uncontrollable. I feel like it drags me away. Yes, of course. And that's a whole other ball game. And we touched on that, I think, in the struggle for, no, we touched on that last week, Romans 7. Romans 7 is still true regardless of everything we just said. They're both true. And we can talk about that. Maybe we'll hit some of that. That's the dynamics of having to wrestle with sin still being present, though not being Lord. Luther's famous illustration is that if sin is a snake, Jesus' death death cut the head off the snake, but the snake is still writhing. And that snake, the presence of sin, is still with us. And it still hurts us greatly. And it still deceives us, still blinds us, it still tells us there's paradise and life over here, and we go, and we've got places that we do it, and we don't even know it. We're going to talk about one of those topics tonight. Here's Jesus, Paul's point. Jesus' death to sin is your death to sin. The control, mastery, and the domain of sin is gone. You died to it. Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection to new life. You live in a new kingdom. That's why we're called a new creation, because it's like a new world has started over again, because the old one's gone, and the old one will end up being completely obliterated. And the new one, the new kingdom, you're in that kingdom. You're a citizen of a new age. You're about a whole new reality that's not sin and death and tears and sadness and destruction. You're now in a kingdom of light, okay? All because of the resurrection. Notice, you and I haven't done anything yet. Nothing. Grace upon grace upon grace. This means what helps us in our struggle with sin, what unleashes fresh power and fresh life on us amidst the struggle with sin is not more law but more grace. To where you have these kind of conversations with sin because you're You're not in that kingdom anymore. You look your sin and you look what you struggle with right in the eyes and you say, you don't love me. Jesus does. You can't redeem me. You can't make me feel acceptable. You can't make me righteous. Jesus does. When I fail you, you curse me and condemn me. When I fail Jesus, he loves me, and he loves me, and he loves me. You make me a slave when I'm a son, I'm a daughter. You see the conversation now you can have with your sin? That's grace. This means what the great hymn Rock of Ages says is true. The gospel of Jesus' death is a double cure. It saves you from the guilt, the condemnation, the death of sin. Legal realities that hang over all of us and lead to all kinds of psychological problems. His death, no more condemnation. We saw earlier all the wrath and condemnation. Jesus was cursed in your place. No more curses. First act of grace. So the opposite of not being cursed is being loved and justified justification because of the righteousness of another. Now what happens is the universal power of sin, its universal dark realm where you have no hope and no light, you've been taken out of that definitively once and for all. You're out of Egypt, grace upon grace. So we're free. We're really free and we haven't done one thing yet. And that's the power of holiness. That's the power of life change. All right, got to end. Part of our problem in the struggle with sin is this. We forget we're no longer in Egypt. We still think we're in Egypt. Um, we still allow sin to convince us we're still a slave. We have that Stockholm Syndrome reality. Oh, you're my friend. You really love me. Yeah, I really love you. Um, you know what's fascinating when you, you read, I've read this over and over again, in Louis Zamperini's book, Unbroken, um, it's so evident too, and I read it in Holocaust survivors, prisoner of war stories, especially those that were prisoners of the Japanese, uh, they were very brutal because to be a prisoner was to be a coward, so if you surrendered or you're a prisoner, you're a coward, so your, your nation doesn't mind if we just beat you to death and torture you and do all kinds of evil stuff to you. Um, So Holocaust survivors, prisoner of war survivors, and others who have survived long periods of captivity under abusive, evil captors. They all have the same kind of psychological thing happen to them. They say when they're free, when they're out, when they finally are set free, something can happen when they could just see their captor or they see a film clip. Or they have a flashback or they hear his voice or her voice and they say to a person, we start feeling and acting and thinking and living and behaving like we're a slave again, like we're captive, but they're free, nothing's changed. It's just the old master, the dark Lord, cracks his whip, and we just instinctively jump. That's what it's like right now for you and me. We're free. But that whip cracks, those threats come, those promises with a smile, with death behind those doors, beckon us to live like a slave again to welcome our captors like they love us, Stockholm Syndrome. Now, that's part of our problem. That's not all of our problem. The Bible tells us that when this does happen, that we start forgetting that we're not in Egypt anymore. What happens is we turn to the law to help us feel like we're back and okay with God. We get out of Egypt we don't believe we're out of Egypt, so while we're, we think we're in Egypt, we start grabbing the law again. We start using the law to feel close to God. We start using the law to grab some sense of righteousness and ability. We start trusting in ourselves again. That's the dynamic of what happens when you forget that you're not there anymore, and that's why Paul spends all of Romans 6 trying to tell you, you're not there. You're free. Believe it. Believe it. Be who you are. That's the whole point of Romans 6. That's part of our problem, but the major part of our problem is this. The greatest power to fight slavery and live like a son or daughter is to be freed from the motivation to sin. Why do we sin? When we get down to the nugget of why we sin and to be freed from that motivation to sin, we really start changing and we really become functionally holy. We really end up pursuing spiritual maturity. We actually, in a, in a wild way, begin to look like the Ten Commandments. And we actually, which is summed up, which we read about is what? Loving others. Loving others. I mean, Paul makes it real clear. Jesus makes it real clear. You want to keep them? Love God, love others. How do you do that? Well, here, Paul answers it in uh, Galatians 5, 6 in your bulletin. He says, for in Christ, Christ, neither circumcision, what's circumcision? Moral exertion, keeping the law. So neither being religious, neither keeping the law, nor uncircumcision. What is that? Moral failure, law-breaking. Neither being religious or irreligious, neither keeping the law or breaking the law, neither being a good person or bad person counts for anything. Do you see that? And that literally means it has no power. It has no power to change your life. It has no power to help you. It has no power to reach you. It has no power to meet Religion and irreligion has no power to meet your deepest longings in life, which is affection and acceptability. No power to do that. No value at all to give you that. But one thing does. Faith in Christ alone. And when that happens, you start having A generation, an energizing fresh wind of love. See how it happens? It kind of goes like this. This is how I see it going. When you start getting that Jesus loves you and you start having faith and you rest in the fact that Jesus loves you, that alone hits home in your heart. And when it hits home in your heart, you become energized to love others. So it works in reverse. We don't love others because we really don't get and feel and know Jesus' love for us. So the answer to being an unloving person is not, "Good night. Stop it. Love, will you? Here's three ways you can. The answer is, you need to ask God to help you get His love. And then where are you going to go to get it? Where are you going to go to feel it to the gospel? And then all of a sudden, you get reached. And now you become a loving person. If you're not a comforting person, it's because you're not comforted by the gospel. When you're comforted by the gospel, you become a comforting person. We're not generous people because we're not finding the generosity of God in the gospel. When we find the generosity of God in the gospel, we become generous people. Do you see the difference? So we could say it this way. When you start trusting and resting in Jesus' righteousness for you, you start realizing, my word, I'm accepted, my word, I'm perfect in him. God welcomes me. I, I have glory and honor beyond anything anyone can give me. No human approval can touch this. No achievement can give me what I long for, which is justification. I am perfect. I am right. I have worth and value. And no achievement, nothing can take that away from me. When you get that... You get energized to forget yourself. You're not thinking about your reputation. You're not thinking about what people think of you. You're not thinking about yourself at all. You start thinking about other people, and you start ministering to other people, and you start serving other people, and the gospel did that. No law does that. Either circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. Last, Jesus' death. Uh, When you start trusting in Jesus' death, that also hits home in your heart. You start It kills all accusations. It kills all condemnation. It kills all sense of having any guilt. And then notice, because we just saw it's a double cure, the tyrannical control and power of sin, you've been taken out of that and you have a new Lord and a new Savior. So now, with that kind of reality hitting your heart, you are energized to fight sin. Now you're in a fight you can't lose. You can't lose this fight. Sure, you're going to sin. You're going to blow it. You're going to lose in that moment. But you will ultimately never lose. You're on the winning side. So, are you living like a slave? Or are you living like a son? A daughter? Whatever the answer to you is, it's never more law, it's always more grace. And grace, and grace, and grace.
2: Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, take these words, Jeff preached, uh, that you preach through him and preach them uh, to us well after today. That you would uh, have the the song of your freedom echoing throughout this week, Lord. uh, That you remind us that we aren't slaves anymore. That you would kill that Stockholm Syndrome, uh, that our love for that slavery. And so, Father, I ask that you would, you would accomplish this uh, by your Holy Spirit and remind us of your love uh, daily, uh, every minute. And Lord, we come now to, to hear your your gospel preached to us in uh, another manner, uh, through the table, through the Lord's Supper. I ask that you would uh, bless these elements, the, the bread and the wine, to become your body and your blood uh, that we might remember what you've done, that we might actually commune with you, uh, meet with you. And so, Lord, preach your gospel that it is finished, that we are free, and we can enjoy that freedom because of what you've done. And, Lord, we also pray for these tithes and offerings. We pray this in your heavenly name. Amen.